Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. Aaron and I are sitting down today with Hutch Hutchinson, a professor of, of organizational behavior in the Questrom School of Business. Um, he has a lot of experience in outdoor education, uh, knows a lot about uh, American and New England studies, which is what he has his PhD in. Uh, and uh, this is going to be the start of a series that we do on experiential education. Uh, and we're going to do this over the course of a semester or even two semesters. We're not exactly sure how it's going to play out, um, but we're really interested in, in getting started here uh, with Hutch. And, and so in order to do that, we just want to get a sense of what your history is. And, and I want to start with an anecdote you once told me when I was asking you uh, about how you got into this, um, which is that you walked home from college. Mm-hmm. And so you were down in Gettysburg, you studied history, and you walked home from college. Can you just start on that anecdote and, and, and your attraction to the outdoors? Yeah. So, um, well, hi, podcast listeners. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I grew up in, in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts uh, in, in a town of Adams, which is where Mount Greylock, which is the tallest mountain in, in Massachusetts, uh, where that is. And the Appalachian Trail goes right over the mountain, and it goes right through Cheshire, which was the town right next to us. And so I always, the Appalachian Trail was always kind of in, in the back of my mind. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a Boy Scout, you know, I was an Eagle Scout, you know, did the whole thing because, you know, you live in rural New England, what are you going to do on the weekends? You know, you, you, you go play in the mountains. And so, uh, so that was kind of always just kind of in my background. And so then when I was looking at, at uh, uh, colleges, when I was doing my college tour, you know, my junior year of high school, we we're at Gettysburg at Gettysburg College, and and the director of admissions or the, the admissions counselor I was I was meeting with was saying, oh, well, you like the outdoors? You know, the Appalachian Trail is like 14 miles away, and I was like, oh, I should walk home, and then we kind of <laughs> laughed about it, and then afterwards I was like, that would be awesome, and and so I spent you know all through college thinking about, oh, I should totally do this, and and, and there's a trail that goes all the way to my house, I might as well take it, right? And uh, and yeah, and 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 I did that. And so as we got closer and closer and senior year came along, I, you know, had a couple of friends who were, uh, who were interested in, in coming along and, and having this adventure together. And, you know, my, my professors pulled me aside and said, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> if, you know, this is the time that you should be getting a job. You shouldn't be out, you know, in the wilderness for two months. That doesn't make any sense. My parents kept pulling me aside. I mean, like, you're going to get eaten by bears. Like, this is not a good idea. Like, my father literally would send me, like, clippings of bear attacks all across the United States and be like, you're not going to make it, buddy. You got to, don't do this. And, uh, but I didn't listen to any of them. And, uh, and so for 49 days, uh, my friends and I walked from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to Adams, Massachusetts, uh, about 500 miles. Um, and uh, it was absolutely life-changing. I mean, it was the, you know, when you do a great adventure like that, um, you learn things that you can't learn in a classroom, right? You know, that, that I, you know, I've always, I knew the geography of Pennsylvania and, you know, New Jersey and New York and Connecticut, but Massachusetts. But in this case, I actually had walked that geography, that topography. You know, there's... You know, you always like to say that, oh, nothing can get in my way. But, like, I literally had crossed big rivers and gone over big mountains and felt like, yeah, no, literally I can go anywhere. And 
in addition to, you know, when you don't have enough protein in your diet and you're, you know, make bad decisions, which happen regularly and, you know, and, and start to really come to grips with things. And, and in some cases, there were times when we were hiking solo and, and, you know, we weren't all together as a group. And that, you know, days alone in your own space, in your own mind is a, is a transformative thing. And it's one of those things that we don't, we often don't take the time to do that. And I had, a, I had an amazing education at Gettysburg. I loved it. But my real graduation was, you know, when I saw Mount Greylock, you know, we, we, had, we climbed, there's this, uh, this place called the Cobbles, which is on the, the, the eastern side of the Hoosick River Valley. And um, it was about a day's hike from, from Adams. And, you know, we, we came through this area. And I had camped there a lot when I was a kid. And there was this really thick, uh, dense rhododendron around the top of this rock outcropping. And so uh, my friend Michael and I came out through that at that moment when the sun was breaking through these small holes in the clouds and it was just these beams of light striking the valley and there was the mountain and um, my friend Muggsy was right behind us and the three of us just sat there in tears and it was like the most amazing graduation moment ever and we still had another day to walk yeah. but but it was that moment and and really feeling like yeah okay I graduated like this is I'm ready for the next big adventure and and you know and that's one of those things that I always carry with me is having had that experience so yeah it was good it's good stuff I highly recommend it so walk home from school is what, what I'm saying. <laughs> I live in California Duh, uh, take a bus for part of the way yeah <laughs> I've been enthralled by the North Country Trail for the past couple months, yeah. which goes all the way to Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I'm always at odds with my passion for the outdoors and for backpacking and mountain climbing, um, which is possible to do outside of Boston. But that, you know, versus my sociology education, I feel like they're constantly at odds. But it sounds like for you, that backpacking trip was kind of the capstone of the glue for your history yeah. education. Oh, yeah. So how did you come out of that feeling like they were working together rather than in conflict with one another? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that really struck me, thinking of it from a historian's perspective, because um, that, I mean, that's what I studied at Gettysburg. I was a history major and education minor. Um, you know, you can read about Stonewall Jackson getting his troops to march 20 to 25 miles a day. Right, but until you've walked twenty to twenty-five miles in a day, you don't really understand what that means. Like that's just a number, right? Uh, you know, you don't really think about what it means to go up and over a mountain range. You don't really think about what what physically goes into those kind of movements. Um, think about the Oregon Trail. Think about you know, I mean, any of these you know kind of iconic American experiences of engaging the natural world and. Um, and what that is about, you know, and, and I think the other thing that comes with that too, and you think about the sociological aspect, that people think about an Appalachian trail hike as it's totally you're alone. And even when we were solo, if you will, we weren't, we were never alone because you're part of a community. And there's a community of these people that are moving along the trail that run the gamut from, you know, your college dropout to recent graduates like we were, to midlife crisis, to I just retired, to parent-child adventure together, to siblings, to just got a divorce and need to clear my head. Like, there's a lot of things that drive people to go on the trail. And, but what happens is you have this moving community 
and you know you're there are these little shelters along the way that people congregate in and you might see someone and, and then you don't see him again for six weeks you know or a month and then you show up in the same little restaurant you know on the side of the trail or you come into the same shelter and and you had this amazing experience 200 miles before together and and just that kind of camaraderie and I think one of the wildest experiences so one of the guys that we were on the trail with his girlfriend was in a wedding on on the Jersey Shore and so you know she's like look you got to be there for the wedding and so he's like okay so why don't we all pull off the trail and we'll go have a weekend on the Jersey Shore talk about a culture shock like to go from this kind of community where everything like literally everything that you owned you had to be able to carry on your back and you know everywhere you go if it's important to you you literally shoulder it and again there's there's a lot of of lessons that come in backpacking with that where you know you realize the more stuff you have the the harder it is on your knees and the more fuel the more food you need to carry it which means your pack gets even heavier and you can't go as far and you feel those very visceral lessons and and to go from that to the Jersey Shore and and to see kind of just the the culture of that um, and how um, much conspicuous consumption was there and you know it was just really shocking to me and I hadn't really thought about it in that context before but to come right out of the trail right into that and then right back um, was pretty wild and uh, you know and again it's those I mean one of the things about experiential education and, and wilderness education in particular is that it forces you into those environments where you come to that realization that yeah the more stuff I have the more I have to carry it mm-hmm. and and I can actually be a lot happier with less um, and be comfortable and have everything I need and enjoy the sunset right so when you talk about this visceral experience of, of literally lightening your no- load and then feeling the effects of that on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, changing your diet on, on the basis mm-hmm. of that, um, that experience is something that in, in today's modern world we, don't, we just don't have anymore. Whether or not you're in a, a very highly urbanized place like Boston or even in the suburbs, we don't experience the visceral connection between our sources of food and energy and the lives we lead. And a lot of the work that you've done and a lot of the writing that you've done is about this, um, at the turn of the 19th century, uh, the, the growth of outdoor education as a way to you know, form the characters of the, the individuals who are participating, the children, um, and, and shape their youths. But my question before we get to any of that is what is the intrinsic value in being in the outdoors and connecting with the world in that very mm. visceral way? I, I think the intrinsic value of being in the outdoors, um, and, and I won't say wilderness because there's other there's definitions within that and concepts within that we can always talk about at some point. But um, being it, moving at a different pace, moving at a pace that's not initially defined by you. Um, I mean, you can pick the mountain, but the mountain will teach you its lessons. The trail goes where it goes, whether you want it to or not. Um, the weather is what the weather is, whether you want it, want it to be that or not. And, and being in that moment, 
is, uh, I think, can awaken the senses in a lot of ways. It can awaken awareness in a lot of ways. And I don't think it has to be the outdoors. I think you can have that a similar experience in an art museum. I think you can have a similar experience, in, you know, I've had similar experiences, you know, walking across the Mass Ave Bridge at sunset and looking at Boston and being like, holy cow. Like there's a, when you have those moments where you step aside from yourself and whoever you're on a cell phone with or trying to text with or whatever and you're like, whoa. Like those moments are are what's intrinsically important. Um, there, uh, The reason why they're often associated with wilderness has a lot to do with 19th century literary culture and romanticism and, and that's where it's where the poets tell us we should find it so it's where you should find it but I don't think it inherently exists in that space necessarily um, what I do think is in that environment whether we're talking about summer camp or we're talking about uh, uh, an Appalachian Trail through hike um, and mine wasn't a through hike I only walked 500 miles the whole thing's like 2,000 miles so that's I'm, I'm still, a section hiker. I'm a section still hiker. Impressed. Yeah. Well, don't be too impressed. There's a lot more people, way more impressive than me, um, and, and who walked a lot longer. Um, but the the thing about it is, you're outside of your normal experience. You're <clears throat> engaging with the world with fresh eyes, and awakening your senses to different things. Mm-hmm. And that happens when you study abroad. That happens when you graduate and you go out on your own. You know, I mean, we talk about, you know, worrying about, you know, not having a lot of stuff to fit in your backpack because you're, you got to carry it. Well, yeah, if your first job out of college doesn't pay you a lot, <laughs> yeah, you're living in Somerville and, and just trying to pay the bills. You're, you're in the same boat. You're in the same boat. And, and figuring out, wow, you know, this whatever little delicacy we're going to go out for ice cream today and it's like oh it's a big deal you know like whatever it is like that those kind of things those moments are are big deals Mm -hmm. um as opposed to being overwhelmed by the you know uh, so much consumerism or the need that it's the stuff that matters um and it's not the stuff it's it's the way that we engage it um and i think what the wilderness does and what out the outdoors often do is they really wake us up to that Mm. um yeah. I think what a lot of the listeners would be surprised by is that you're kind of the mind behind Common Ground, mm-hmm. which most people had to do at Boston University. And I think you just spoke to this really well, how it's about the experience and interacting with whatever new surrounding it is. So I would say kind of the main part about Common Ground that people learn from is having to take the tea places. Yeah. And that's a whole new experience. I mean, I think I grew as a person the first time I, <laughs> yeah. I took the tea from <laughs> here to Harvard or wherever. Um, so how does, I guess, the philosophy behind outdoor education apply to urban experiences yeah. and Common Ground? Well, I'll tell you, so the, the backstory behind Common Ground, I, I think, fits some of this. Because before it was Common Ground, um, so I was up at, at Boston University Sargent Center for Outdoor Education. And, and my job there was for really to kind of do the programming for college and graduate school and, and high school programs that would come up and do retreats and do, you know, experiential ed experiences, you know, mm-hmm. up, up at the camp. And so one of the things that we started playing with was this brand new technology called GPS. 
<laughs> and this is 2005. And uh, and I remember being really frustrated and like this is stupid. Like I don't want to do this. Isn't this is we don't need technology. We need to like learn mapping compass. Like we you know I was definitely pushing that line. And uh, what we started to play with was this idea of let's use the ropes course because you know Sargent Center 750 acres, you know multiple high ropes courses, more low ropes elements than we even knew. Like you'd be wandering in the woods and you'd find like you know, a nitro swing or a wall that were like, do we even know we had this? And somebody built it 30 years ago and it's still sitting there, you know? And, and so the, it was wild. But what we did was we'd use the GPS unit and we'd navigate around the camp using the GPS. So one of the key things with experiential ed is you always want to have the student at the center of the learning at all times, the facilitator, the teacher, the, we should always be pushing the learning and the work and the, the real intellectual vigor on the, the student. It's not about listening to us. It's about experiencing it for themselves. And so one of the things that the GPS allowed us to do is that if, if I'm your facilitator, hey, let's go do the nitro swing and then it's going to finish and then, okay, we'll be student focused on you and then you'll follow me and I will bring you to your next challenge, right? Mm-hmm. So it always comes back to the facilitator. But with the GPS, we could completely shift that. Mm-hmm. And the students were in charge. And, and we'd get really elaborate where like we would hide uh, a Rubik's Cube and you'd have to solve the Rubik's Cube because written on one side of it were the coordinates they had to enter for their next location. You know, really kind of get elaborate with what we were doing. And so we, had, we created some of that stuff, and, and then we started to get the call from a lot of colleges about, well, we want to do more team building and adventure programs in the summer. And we had a summer camp that was running, and so we were at capacity, so we didn't have the, the physical space to do it. And, and so it was actually a, a, one of the programs at, at WPI that had reached out to us about this. And, and the director was like, well, hey, what about doing something in Boston? Do you do anything in the city? Sorry, what's WPI? Uh, Worcester Polytech Institute. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so because Sargent Center served colleges all over New England. It wasn't just BU. And so we, uh, we said, well, I don't, I don't know. What could we do? And we started to think about what we could do and to say, well, instead of taking people to the nitro swing, swing and the spider's web and the, the multi-vine and all the different low elements that are out there, we could take them to Fenway Park and Quincy Market and the Boston Common. And, and instead of having an element built we can carry stuff in our backpacks and do portable challenges and do that. And so that was the initial idea. Um, so the thought was that we could carry our equipment around. We use the city as our landscape and, uh, and our program area, and we build it around there. And so that's what kind of started the idea. And, and shortly after that, um, we connected in with the orientation office, and they were saying that they had this program called Common Ground that was built on Howard Thurman's ideas mm-hmm. and, and was run by the Thurman Center. And, and they liked the idea of getting people off campus and out in the city. And so we... You know, started off thinking about, well, okay, how, how would that look? What would that look like? How do we staff it? How do we train a staff? And, um, and develop it out from there. And that was, I think we started in 2006. And, you know, we were really, really anxious and nervous when we would run a program for like 100 students. Right. You know, and, yeah. and now, you know, we've got over 4,000 a year that right. we do. Because now it's mandatory. Everybody does it, you know. Right. And, and so it's grown dramatically. Um, but at its core, the, the central part is that we're having these experiential team building right. times together, these moments together, exploring this wilderness of the city. Right. You know, and, and again, the wilderness is just an area that you're feeling bewildered. 
And, and that's exactly what we often feel, whether you're wandering out in the woods and afraid that bears are going to get you, or whether you're wandering in the city afraid you're going to get lost on the tee. Right. Right? You're still in a state of bewilderment. And, and how we respond to that state of bewilderment and, and how we rely on each other in that state of bewilderment is, is where a lot of that real learning comes. I think we should come back to this common ground issue because it's something that I think a lot of our listeners have experienced. That's how we got to know you because we're um, both part of orientation and got to experience it as well from the facilitator side. Um, but real quick, if we can take a detour into sure. um, Boston University's role in experiential education um, because Alfred D- Dudley Sargent was a was really a pioneer of the field. And I know everyone knows the Sargent School when they passed on Commonwealth Avenue, but I don't think anyone really knows who he was, and and I'm sure a lot of yeah. people don't actually even know that Sargent Camp existed up there. Yeah. So can yeah. you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so Dudley Allen Sargent um, is... That's all good. That's all good. Um, he... So his backstory... So he, there's this guy growing up in Maine. Yeah. Um, he's too young to fight in the Civil War, uh, but really wants to be involved. He gets you know engaged in building the fortifications for Belfast, Maine. I mean, he's just, you know, he's, but he's this really kind of high-strung kid um, and discovers gymnastics. And, and this just turns him around. And he gets so excited about being a gymnast and, and learning what that means and the physicality of things and, and, and eventually becomes a, a circus performer. He's a trapeze artist. And so what he, like literally, what he, he has this one trick where he'd be on a ladder, on a trapeze, like multiple rungs up, swinging and keeping his balance while the trapeze is going on the ladder. Or he'd do it on a chair, he'd stand on a chair. on this, So that he was, and, and, and he traveled around Maine, he joined a traveling circus that went around all of New England. The circus was uh, heading to South America and he missed the boat. Like, literally, he got stuck on the way to Hartford where the boat was heading out to South America, and, you know, he missed it. So then he was like, well, now what am I going to do? So he decides he's going to go to college. And so he goes back to Maine. He goes to Bowdoin College, uh, and he gets a job as the director of the gymnasium. And because he's working there, he can go to school for free. So he gets his kind of – that's how he's able to work through his degree. Uh, gets his degree. He really focuses. He, I think his senior. No, it's his his, his dissertation. I'll, I'll come to that. So then he does that for a while, and then he goes on to to Yale Medical School because he's really interested in this physical training stuff, and he's really concerned about the 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 health concerns, the nutrition, the physical activity, the the. Or inactivity, the, you know, a lot of these late nineteenth-century concerns that we're not physically active enough or healthy enough, and modern lifestyle is really having a negative impact on our life. Right? Totally alien to what people talk about today. Right? <laughs> and and so, I mean, he writes his his dissertation for his medical degree was on the moral significance of food, wow. and on understanding nutrition and healthy food and the impact it has on, on maintaining our overall health. So he decides that what he wants to do is focus on how do I not just treat the sick, but prevent people from getting sick. 
So how do I use physical activity, what they call physical culture, and think about it like agriculture, like you're, you're going to grow plants, okay. right? And, well, physical culture is we're going to grow the physique. Yeah. So how do we cultivate ourselves, um, which is a big 19th century concept, is to mm-hmm. cultivate yourself, right, intellectually and physically and whatever. So, and he really sees the, the area that is in most need are women and children. And so he, instead of going down the road to becoming a practicing physician, you know, he decides he wants to run a gym. And so he starts running a gym in, in uh, New York City. And then shortly after that, start specifically targeting women and, and children. And then shortly after that, he gets hired by Harvard to run the new Hemingway Gymnasium, which is, is the fitness and recreation center of higher education in the late 19th century. This is the place to be, right? So he gets hired to run this. And, and of course, it's for the Harvard students, which are all male, but, but he still has this strong interest in, in how do I you know, serve the broader perspective of, of American culture. And so he starts to kind of get try to get Radcliffe to do some physical education stuff, and they aren't having it. He tries to really kind of weave in more physical education and physical culture into the Harvard curriculum, and they're holding him back because it doesn't sound academic enough. Um, and so he decides he's going to start his own college. So he starts this thing called Sergeant College or Sergeant School uh, for physical training. And it goes through normal different names over the years, but it's primarily a normal school. Which and this is, is in Cambridge. This is in Cambridge. And a normal school... What that refers to is what we would now call like a school of education or a teacher training school. Um, but it's focused primarily on teaching women how to teach physical education, how to be gym teachers, right? And, and, and looking at the demand that is in or beginning to emerge within like the YMCA community, um, within, you know, different kind of the, the, the different women's colleges that are out there, coaching sports, you know, and, and these kind of things. That's really what he, he starts building in the 1880s. Um, by, the, by 1912, you've got the outdoor education movement really kicking it in. Uh, and so he decides he's going to form this, this training center for women's summer camps and women's physical education. Uh, and that's sergeant camp. So he purchases land up in Peterborough, Hancock, uh, New Hampshire. Um, and this is 1912. It's, I think the camp opened, the first session was in like June of 1912, which to give a perspective, the Girl Scouts started in March of 1912. So, I mean, talk about being right on the cutting edge. The first, uh, I want to say the first girls camp in America was Camp Redcroft, which is in New Hampshire. Uh, and I, I want to say that opened in like 1903, in the first half of the first decade of, of 1900. Um and then uh, Camp Onaway, which ended up opening on its same location, opened in 1912. So there's a lot going on. He's on the cutting edge of this, you know, trying to train women to have that training. And, and, and a lot of what Sargent was really about was, you know, the public discourse was that, you know, if women went for a run, their uteruses would fall out. Right? That was the general perception. The idea was to keep women inactive and, and at home and not doing anything physical. It would threaten their femininity. And Sargent was like, absolutely not. Like, they need to be physically active to stay healthy and, and to be out there. And he would do these things where he'd, he'd, you know, he'd have a, a, a bunch of women run a race, you know, in, in their corset and long dresses and, and, and shoes that they would wear in polite society. And, 
and they'd run the, the 100 yards. And he would time them and take their blood pressure and take their pulse and all that stuff. And then the next day, he'd have them do it in bloomers and a blouse and athletic shoes, and he would time that and, and do all the studies and be like, look, it's not that women aren't able to do this. It's that we're forcing a terrible fashion style that is really physically restrictive. And that's the problem. It's not that women are inherently not able to do this. Right. You know, and, and he would make these strong public proclamations in the, in the press that really were counter a lot of what was the dominant uh, uh, perception of what women could do physically. And, you know, and say, well, women can play, you know, any sport except rugby and football and baseball. Like, that was his big thing. You can't, those are the three sports. But when he built sergeant camp, which is an all-girls camp, and and the the key thing when you go when you look at the camp, the, there's a it's like an arena. It's built like an arena. There's a huge meadow in the middle, and all the cabins are around it, facing in. All the white pines are around it. You know, it's it's a, it is it's an arena, but each uh, area of the field was a different sports field. It wasn't a generic sports field area like the field hockey area was marked off at the right dimensions Mm -hmm. the soccer field was the right dimensions the basketball courts the tennis courts like it wasn't there wasn't a multi-use area and on that area there was a softball diamond but there was also a baseball diamond who do you think played baseball up there right it's an all-girls camp so even though he's publicly saying you know women can't play baseball at his camp far up in the mountains in New Hampshire, you know, you can do it. Now, now this is also not to say that, you know, he's, he's by our standards today, he's not a feminist, right? right. You know, and, and, you know, he definitely, he was not a fan of women having the right to vote. Part of the reason why women should be physically active is so they could be better mothers. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, right. he's still a product of the 19th century. Uh, but you look at the foundation that he laid as far as the physicality of it and, and the, the scientific research that he was doing at the time, to really push for for the importance of physical education mm-hmm. um, and how that blended right into outdoor education, he really had a huge impact. Um, I mean, I can go on and on. Yeah, sorry, yeah. he's good no, stuff. No, no. Um, the so I'm probably going to edit this out, but you mentioned Peterborough, and I didn't really. I was just I like passed there. I've been up there like three times yeah. this summer already, and when we did orientation they steal us up there in like yeah. the dark of night you know you have no idea where you're going yeah. so I knew Sergeant Camp was in New Hampshire but I still had no geographical sense of yeah. where it was and I, it's so funny because I've passed the sign for Peterborough like a yeah. million times this summer it's hilarious oh that's awesome um, but yeah, it was, it's on the base of Mount Monadnock right? yeah yep. <laughs> did, did he use the mountain at all he did yeah I mean one of the things that they would do is they would have like they and the the, the photographs and the the, the you know materials that are left yeah. from the camp that you get it's awesome to see what what they would do and what their culture was like and what it was all the whole community of camp and but one of the big things was the the big hike which was to hike from the camp to the summit of the mountain which is about i think it's a 20 mile round trip um and so and they would do it over two days but the big thing was to get to the you know near the top of the mountain and light a fire that was big enough that the girls who were back at the camp mm-hmm. could look and see that the girls who just made the summit made it, you know, and, and I don't know how much that actually happened, but yeah, that's what they wrote about, and that's what they talked about, about yeah. how that was the cool ritual. And you'd know that they were coming back into camp because you'd hear them singing their songs, yeah. you know, so you had literary significance and importance in addition to being, you know, a great view, right. you know, and, and, and the second most climb. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, so the uh, Monadnock means the mountain that stands alone. Mm-hmm. 
it, there's a geologic term when you have a mountain that's not part of a larger range just standing alone. It's, it's called Amenadnock, and it's called that because of this particular mountain. But Emerson wrote an, a, an amazing poem uh, called Menadnock, and Thoreau wrote about it, and you know uh, uh, John Greenleaf Whittier wrote about it. So it has this kind of connection to it. And you know Willa Cather, when she wrote uh, uh, My Antonia, wrote it at the base of the mountain and she lived there she's buried in Jaffrey um, at the foot of the mountain and and Mark Twain was there and, and Abbott Thayer the artist was there and, and there's there's you know the McDowell colony the art colony hey podcast listeners this is Aaron and I'm going to interject here for a minute because unfortunately that was the end of our first session with Hutch the audio was lost we're going to blame it on the microphone in fact it probably was the microphone's fault but alas, the audio was lost for his first segment. So we're just going to leave you with a beautiful image of Mount Monadnock. Hike it someday if you can. It's very close to Boston if you're in the Boston area. So stay tuned for more, um, more episodes on experiential education and other things that we are looking into, some of our DC episodes and healthcare episodes that will be coming out this semester. Um, and thank you so much for listening. As Kobe would say, we'll keep looking for the common thread.